0: Well, as we've been moving through uh, selected psalms this summer, I think that we've seen, one thing we've seen for sure, again and again repeated, is this idea of talking to yourself. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and I quoted from David Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I want to quote that again. Uh, from his book, Spiritual Depression. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote in the 1950s. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself. That's something that more than any other book in the Bible, the Psalms... The Psalms teach us to do. Let me just try and give you an example from my own life this week. Uh, Early this week, I was in the office trying to work and I gotta say, I was really irritable. I felt really discouraged. I felt really downcast and I was tired. And, and, And the first step in that for me was actually realizing that I feel that way. I know that's a huge step for me. A lot of us never even realize that, especially if we're men. We don't even know how we feel. You can ask my wife. That's something that I've had to work on a lot in my life. So I thought, whoa, I do feel tired and irritable and depressed. And so I asked myself, why do I feel this way? Why am I feeling? What's going on in my heart? And that's actually the Holy Spirit at work, helping me to know myself and to sense what's happening. And so that was the second step. The first step was realizing how I felt. The second step was asking, why am I irritable? Why am I depressed? And then the third step was to take that before the Lord and to exercise faith. The way I try to do that is by walking. I walked around our office complex, literally uh, muttering and talking out loud to myself I think people wonder what's going on with Christchurch when they see the pastor wandering around the office complex talking to himself. But that's something that I regularly do. I had to say to myself in that situation, what is true? I was trying to incorporate into my daily life some of the things that we've seen in our study in the Psalms this summer. I was trying to do what Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, to preach to myself. So what is it we're supposed to preach to ourselves? What are we supposed to say to ourselves when we're struggling with the reality of being in a broken world? When we're feeling downcast or irritable or when we're hurting or when we're angry or when we're afflicted in some way? Well, that's where Psalm 103 comes in. That's where Psalm 103 comes in. This is one of the greatest examples in the entire scripture of how we can preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, of God's love. To ourselves. And so I want to look at what this ancient saint, David, can teach us here. And then I want us to seek, by faith, to follow Jesus in our lives by looking at this psalm together. So that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. Let me summarize for you. Here's the big idea this morning. We remember the benefits of life with God, or when we remember the benefits of life with God, our hearts are lifted. When we remember and when we can preach to ourselves, the benefits of life with God, our hearts are lifted. I want to show you two big things that this Psalm helps us to remember. We're gonna see that we should remember that we are forgiven. And then, secondly, to remember that we are loved. Remember that you're forgiven, and remember that you're loved. So, first things first, look at verse one with me of Psalm 103. David begins by doing what I was just saying. He's talking to himself. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, that literally means all of my guts, all of my inward parts, bless God's holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself again. And forget not all his benefits. So David is encouraging himself. He's reminding himself to remember the promises and the benefits of God. He reminds himself, he talks to himself, he preaches to himself. He's saying, here's why I should love the Lord. Here's why I should bless the Lord. Here's why I should thank the Lord and praise the Lord. So just right away, let me just apply this in a hopefully a practical way. This is really what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian in the day-to-day life of following Jesus. What we're doing as followers of Jesus is attempting to translate what we hear on Sundays and what we read in our times in the Bible and what God is revealing to us through prayer. We're trying to translate that into our regular daily rhythms. By the way, that's one reason, just practically, why we follow a particular order of worship here on Sundays. Our worship service is designed to remind you. Every week of the story of the gospel, God made us and calls us to worship him. That's what we were created for. And so that's the first thing we do. And then we praise him with singing. We were reminded of his goodness and love for us in Jesus through the preaching of the word. And then when, we were, reminding of who, when we we're reminded of who God is and of his grace, one of the first things people always do is confess. They confess their sin. They realize their own need, which is why we do that every Sunday. And then we remember that God pardons us and we sing again. And then we respond in faith by giving and by coming to the table and celebrating. So our worship is designed specifically, and there's all kinds of ways that churches can do this. There's no one right way. We don't have the only way, but worship services are designed to help people learn to preach the gospel to themselves. And that's a part of why we do what we do. So David here is talking to himself. He's preaching to himself so he can remember the benefits of the gospel. And what's the first thing he says? The first thing he tells himself, bless the Lord, praise the Lord. Why? Because verse two, God is the one who forgives. He forgives all your iniquity who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, David first remembers that he is forgiven. Forgiven. It's a beautiful thing. It's at the very core of what it means to know God, the real God, the only God. We need to remember the depth of two things, the depth of our iniquity, which David talks about, And the greater depth of God's forgiveness. Okay, think about that word with me. The first word I used, iniquity. That's the word David uses. He forgives all of our iniquity. What does that word mean? If you've read the Bible much, uh, you'll know that there's all kinds of different words the Bible uses to describe our rebellion against God. There's sin, transgression, lawlessness, and here, iniquity. So what is iniquity? Iniquity refers in particular to conscious and particularly awful sinfulness. It's a word that conveys our propensity to willfully sin and even to delight in sin. To willfully sin and even delight in sin. And so to have iniquity is to flaunt god 's goodness and god 's law right in front front of his face, one of my uh, seminary professors used this illustration that has always stuck with me and i 've used it before. Um, He says that our relationship to God in our iniquity is one in which you can imagine a grandfather holding his young grandchild on his knees, bouncing him up and down on his knees, trying to love him and care for him. And if the grandfather, of course, were to drop this child, the child would fall and be injured. But instead of rejoicing with the grandfather or thanking the grandfather, the child being held by his granddad is slapping his grandfather across the face again and again, and again. That's a great description or illustration of what iniquity is. You might think about, about it like this iniquity is, is actively seeking out what we know is wrong. Um, can we be honest with ourselves for a minute? Because the truth is, we all engage in iniquity. I mean, have you, have you ever been about to do something or say something or think something that you know is wrong? And you might even stop for a minute and say, huh, this shouldn't happen probably, this is bad. You consider it and then you just blow right through the barricade and you do it anyway, or you say it anyway, or you think it anyway. That, that is iniquity. Breaking Bad, one of the great TV shows ever. You can go ahead and send me emails about why I shouldn't use this illustration after the sermon, but I'm gonna use it anyway. Uh, The entire series in Breaking Bad is about this guy named Walter White, who's a high school chemistry teacher. And he gets diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he thinks he's going to die. And so Walter White uses his chemistry knowledge to begin trafficking meth in Albuquerque. And over the series, he becomes this massive drug lord who progressively, through the series and through the episodes, breaks badly and badly and badly more and more and more. And if you've watched the show, you'll notice that one thing Walter White constantly does is justify why he's doing these terrible things. Throughout the whole series, he says, I'm doing this for my family. They can't afford the medical treatment that he needs for his chemotherapy. And so he sells drugs in order to take care of his family and in order to take care of himself. And one of the most poignant things about the series is how he's self-justifying his own iniquity, his own wicked behavior throughout the whole series. Then you get to the very ends. The very end in the last episode of Breaking Bad, when everything has fallen apart, Everything has fallen apart for Walter White and for his family. There's a scene in which he comes and sees his wife again. And he says to his wife, her name is Skylar. He says, Skylar, all these things I did, you have to understand. And then Skylar interrupts him. And she says, if I have to hear one more time that you did this for your family. And then Walter White interrupts her. And he says, no, I did it for me. I liked it. I was good at it. I was I was alive. That's one of the most poignant pictures in any art I've ever seen of what the human heart is really like before God. It's one of the great illustrations of the wretchedness of the human condition. And what Walter White found out is what each of us are going to have found out, that our iniquity doesn't make us alive. In fact, it puts us in the pit, which is what David says. It separates us from God. And because it separates us from God, it separates us from all that is good. It ruins us, and it ruins everything around us. So David is reflecting on his own iniquity here, and then he says, God responds. But how does God respond? He forgives iniquity, he forgives. The Lord is merciful and gracious, verse 8 slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That is what God is like. God is forgiving. God is merciful. God does not count our sin against us if we connect to him through faith in Jesus. God is not in the business of paying us back what we deserve for our iniquities. That phrase in verse 8, 9, and 10, it comes directly from another part of the Bible, in Exodus 34, when Moses has just asked God to show him his glory. That's another way of saying, God, show me what you're like in your very essence. At your core, God, who are you? And God says to him, I am a God who is steadfast in love. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, not repaying people according to their iniquities. Here's the point. That concept of forgiveness is intrinsic to the very being of God. It's at the heart of who God is. And that's what David is telling himself. He's saying, my iniquities are great. I willfully and constantly sin against God and then flaunt it to his face and God is in his steadfast love, forgives me. He forgives me. David, you know, it's like he can't just get over this reality, which is why in verse 11 and 12, he uses this amazingly poetic, wonderful language. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The height of God's love is higher the height of God's love is higher than the heavens or above the earth. I've never been into space, but I have been skydiving. When I was 18 years old, one of the stupidest things I've ever done, I lived to tell about it, and I'll never do it again. I would not counsel you to do it either as a, your loving pastor. But I did it, and I remember looking out. The worst part is when you, they open the door, and you just have to step out on this little beam, and you're looking down. They say, don't look down. Of course, what did I do? First thing, look down. I was like, we are way up here. I am high up. The heavens are really high above the earth, and I never appreciated that until the moment when I'm about to be thrusted out of an airplane by another guy attached to my back that I just met 20 minutes ago. The heavens are really high above the earth. And David is saying here that God's steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness, his promise to forgive is bigger than the heavens are bigger than the earth, and bigger still. God takes our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? At what point on the map does east become west? Well, the point is it's, it's infinitely far. The point is you'll never see the guilt of your sin again. Never, ever, if you trust God. The eternal debt you owe for your iniquity cannot ever sniff you. It can't touch you. It can't get close to you if you trust in God. That's how far God throws them away. Remember in uh, Aladdin, you kids might remember this, when uh, towards the end, uh, Jafar, the evil sorcerer, finally gets the lamp, remember? And the first thing he does is cast Aladdin as far away from him as the east is from the west. He sends him like to the coldest, remotest region of the globe that's an exact picture of what God in his covenant faithfulness does to our iniquity. He casts it away from us. So David says, I need to remember this. I need to preach this to myself. God's forgiving. God's forgiving. So how does that work? Now, here's where, here's where some of you might make a mistake, okay? Um, you might make a mistake here in how you view God uh, because we might think that God really doesn't care that much about our sin that he really kind of just loves us just the way we are, that he just ignores our sin. The way C.S. Lewis put this is that some people see God not as a father, but as a senile grandfather in the sky that can say, at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. But that's not the real God. That's a flat version of God. That's not the complex God we see in the scripture. And this chapter alone, it doesn't tell us that God never gets angry, does it? What does it say? It says he is slow to anger. It doesn't tell us that God is just going to sweep your iniquity under the rug and say, you know what, it's no big deal. It doesn't matter. We're all fine. We're good to go. That's not what God is like. God does not love you just the way you are. God does not love you just the way you are. Your sin offends him. Your sin is harmful to him and it's harmful to you because God is a good king and any good king and any moral person is angered by evil. And God's perfectly just and so he punishes iniquity in just the right way. And so that leads us to a correct view of God. The view Psalm 103 gives us, God doesn't sweep our sin as far away as as the east from the west just by ignoring it. God sweeps our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west by punishing it. He punishes sin. He just doesn't punish you. He just doesn't punish you. He punishes his son, Jesus, instead. God the Father and God the Son agreed. They made a compact together to willingly give of themselves to give of themselves, to take the full weight, the full responsibility of all of our sin so that we can receive the full forgiveness that David talks about in this psalm. God doesn't ignore sin. That's actually not good news because when you're sinned against, you don't want God to ignore that. God doesn't ignore sin. God hates sin and God judges sin. But the gospel, the good news, is that God judges sin at the cross. He judges sin at the cross. That's why Jesus had to die. That is what sin costs. That's what iniquity is. It deserves death. So the cross is where the justice of God against sin is seen. And it's where the mercy of God for sinners is seen. God is forgiving because he pours out on Jesus, his son, who willingly offers himself as a sacrifice, all of the punishment that our sins have earned and merited, so that you and I can receive the full forgiveness, so that our guilt can be flung away as far as the east is from the west. Listen to the 19th century commentator uh, Octavius Winslow. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but I'm reading it, so listen. Octavius Winslow. The cross of Jesus displays the most awesome exhibition of God's hatred of sin, and at the same time, the most august manifestation of his readiness to pardon it. Pardon, full and free, is written out in every drop of blood that is seen, and is proclaimed in every groan that is heard. O oh, blessed door of return, open and never shut to the wanderer from God! How glorious, how free, how accessible! Here the sinful, the vile, the guilty, the unworthy, the poor, the penniless may come. Here too the weary spirit may bring its burden, the broken spirit its sorrow, the guilty spirit its sin. All are welcome here. The death of Jesus was the opening and the emptying of the full heart of God. It was the outpouring of that ocean of infinite mercy that heaved and panted and longed for an outlet. It was God showing how. He could love a poor, guilty sinner. What more could he have done than this? Amen. Amen. Preach the gospel to yourself by remembering. By remembering that God forgives. He forgives your sin in Jesus. As great as that is, that's not all. Second thing we see in this psalm is to remember that we are loved. David preaches the gospel to himself. He remembers that he's forgiven, but he also remembers that he's loved. He... He says that through the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we receive forgiveness of our iniquities. But that's not all we get. We don't just, like, get back to neutral with God. Where we're no longer guilty, our sins are washed away, but we're also not necessarily, you know, beloved. We're just neutral, and it now depends on how we do in the future. No, 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 no. God forgives our iniquity. He takes away our guilt, but he also brings us into his home. He makes us his father, or he makes us his children, excuse me, and he is our father. We don't just get back to neutral with God so we're, we're neither a sinner nor a saint. No, God in Jesus takes our sin on himself, as we've seen, and then God in Jesus welcomes us into his fatherly love. That's the second thing this psalm is about. There's so much more to this psalm, but this is the last point I want to make. We've already seen that phrase, steadfast love. You see it in verse 4, you see it in verse 8. You see it in verse 11. God is loving to us. Now I want to hone in on another part of the psalm that makes that point. Look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13. As a father shows compassion. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So what is the real God like? What is the only God like? He is, David says, a father who shows compassion Compassion. Now, words always matter in the Bible. Words matter. And, and this is such a powerful word. It's kind of actually an awkwardly uncomfortable word, to be honest. This word compassion refers to um, it's it's deeply emotional. It refers to an overwhelming visceral sense of being in love with someone. It's when you are utterly taken by and captivated with another. It's when you are head over heels, consumed with feeling, with love, with compassion for someone else. That's what this word means. That's why when this word is used other times in the Old Testament, in the language of Hebrew, it's almost always used of a mother's love for her newborn. In Isaiah, for example, Isaiah verse 15 of chapter 49, we read this. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion. There's the word. No compassion on the son of her womb. And then God says, even she may forget. Even she may forget, but I will not forget you. Another place where this is used is in 1 Kings chapter 3. You probably know this story. Even if you haven't read your Bible in a long time, it's about King Solomon's wisdom. Two prostitutes who have young children are living with one another and um, a lot of other women, and they both have babies. And one of the women rolls over on her child at night, suffocating him to death, and the child dies. And so she takes the other child's infant and pretends it's her own. And so they wake up in the morning, and there's conflict, so they both go to King Solomon. And both of the women say, this child is mine. It's not hers, it's mine. And Solomon has no way to know who's lying and who's telling the truth. And so you remember what he does. He says, bring me my sword. Bring me my sword. I'm going to divide the child in half so that each of you may have half of him. And the woman whose child it really is immediately says, no, 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 no. Give the child to her. Give the child to her. And then the author of 1 Kings says this. Because her heart yearned, Same word, compassion, yearned for her son. She basically said, I'm the one lying. I'm the one lying. Give her the living child. And so the love of God here is compared to the biologically rooted love that a mother has for her newborn. You know, just as an aside, both fatherhood and motherhood language are used of God, right? And that's because all of us are made in God's image, men and women equally. So the reason that we feel love like this for our children or for our spouse or for someone is because we are like God in this regard. We dimly reflect what God fully possesses. So can you just get with me here, okay? Think about this with me. We have to just... Just consider this for a moment, okay? Parents, I think, can get this. You can get this if you're not a parent. You surely can. But when you become a parent, you can get this in a profoundly new way, right? I mean, Marianne and I remember this. I remember the night before our oldest was born. The the night before Nate was born, and we knew he was going to be born because Marianne was induced. And so she and I went to bed that night, and we knew Nate was coming in the morning. And I remember saying to Marianne and then thinking to myself, well, our life's never going to be the same after tomorrow. I mean, this is the last night I'm going to go to bed without having another human being in the house that I'm responsible for in every way. Holy cow. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's like a line was drawn in the sand of my life from that night to the next day. And then you get to experience meeting that child, right? You meet your son and you know this, parents, whether you adopted or whether you had a child biologically, the emotional experience is the same. You see that child and everything does change, doesn't it? Everything changes for you. Why? Well, because in that moment you see something that you value more than yourself. You see someone to whom you can say to yourself with complete honesty, I would take a bullet in a heartbeat for that person. I would give myself up entirely for that person. I'm going to have sleepless nights, days without end, for that person. I love that person. It's emotionally overwhelming, isn't it? Which is why Anne Lamont, one of my favorite authors, says, I don't remember who said this, but there really are places in the heart you don't even know exist until you love a child. Isn't that true? And here's the point. That kind of overwhelming love... That kind of overwhelming love is a dim reflection. It's like 1% of the depth of love that God has for you right now and always. That is how much you are loved. You are completely safe. You are completely safe. You are completely safe in the love of God. One more thing. Why does God love us this much? Why does God love us this much? Well, you might have read this chapter before. You might even have heard it read this morning and think, you know, I think I know why God loves me that much. I mean, verse 13 tells us, it says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to who? To those who fear him. And so you might conclude, God gives compassion. He gives this sort of deep, guttural love to those who fear him. So his love is dependent upon my reverence of him. You might think, That's pretty good exegesis, and you would be wrong. That's why I love you. I can tell you you're wrong. You're wrong, if that's what you think. And it's not the reason. Let me show you why. Hebrew is very fond of what is called parallelism. Parallelism, especially Hebrew poetry, like the Psalms. And that's what we see in verse 13. It's a great example of parallelism, or couplets, Okay, the first half of the couplet in verse 13 says that God shows compassion to his children. And then the second half of the couplet is going to repeat the same idea using different or more pronounced language. So the first couplet, God shows compassion to his children. The second half is a parallel statement saying God shows compassion to those who fear him. So what does that mean? It means that those who fear him and his children are the same thing. And it also means that the reason for God's love is not given here. God doesn't love you so deeply that it can compare to a mother's love for, his, or for her child because you've been very, very good at fearing him. God loves you so deeply because of what verse 14 says. For, there's the purpose clause, there's the reason. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are amazing human beings. He remembers that we are well-deserved of his fatherly affection. He remembers that we are very, very religious. He remembers that we're dust. Dust. God does not love you because of how strong your reverence and fear for him is. God loves you because you are so, so, so weak. He loves you because he knows just what you're like. You're dust. You're weak. You're small. You're not just weak and small, and I'm not just weak. We're we're a wreck. We're a mess. We're not dust. We're, We're like after you've turned the sprinklers on in a muddy backyard and your kids go out and play and they come back in, the stuff that's on their feet is what we're like. We're a mess, a muddy mess, and God of all beings knows what a mess we make of our lives and the lives of others, he knows who we are perfectly, and this verse says that he loves us because of, because of our frailty. He loves us in spite of our making a mess of things, and so the gospel is that we are forgiven through Jesus, and then through Jesus, we're partakers of the fatherly love of God, we get to go home to God forever, simply because God in his very core is is loving on a level that's infinitely greater than the greatest parent has ever loved a child. God does not love you because you're lovely. God loves you because he is love. Again, I think parents can get this. Sorry for focusing on parents so much, folks. If you're not a parent, I apologize. But the fatherhood language of God here, I think, makes it important. When we have kids, your heart locks onto that child, so much so that you know you know as a parent that you're not going to be happy unless that kid is happy it's just true and even below average parents since this you know that's like 49 percent of us right below average parents <laughs> even below average parents since this about below average kids i mean let's be honest we feel this more with our kids who struggle actually when our kids are troubled or when they're weak or when they're hurting that's that's when we more lock onto them and we're more grieved and we're more hurt that they're hurting friends that is what this is saying about god's love god's infinitely loving heart has locked onto you it's locked onto you it's honed you in like a tractor beam in star trek it's locked onto weak frail broken kids And the reason that God is telling us this through Psalm 103 is so that we can remember, again, that we are absolutely safe. Absolutely safe. Absolutely safe in his love. Now and always and forever. And it's all for free. It's all without any purchase required on our part. So, again, the point. Can you remember these truths? That's that's what it means to be a Christian. To light up your life, to warm your heart, to renew your mind as you preach to yourself, I am forgiven. Today, I have been guilty of iniquities that I don't even know about. Today, I have run away from God. During this sermon, I've probably sinned 35 times minimum, and I am forgiven. My guilt is taken away because Jesus died, and I am loved By the Father in heaven who is perfect and in whom there is no shadow or shifting due to change. My earthly father doesn't love me perfectly. Your earthly father might have left you long ago. But God, your father, loves you. And his love is unchanging and unfailing. So if you can preach that to yourself, you begin to experience the light of life. You begin to experience transformation. You begin to rest in the deep love of God. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You're rich in love. You're slow to anger. Your name is great. Your heart is kind. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing. 10,000 Reasons.